When looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Well, excuse me! Looking for good ideas for life? You're far from good hands. Hey, bud, what's your problem? If you think the listener is always right, you're far from the right place. Out of order! Even in the future, nothing works! Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, but a rebel by choice. Are you threatening me? If you want a host that floats between love and madness, and we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any other films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Hi, my name is Ariel Steele Toombs, daughter of the legendary Rowdy Roddy Piper and sister of the less legendary Colt Toombs, and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, as many of the listeners know, as a former history major that I am, but still try to stay current as I pour myself a drink for Thursday, Thursday, (laughs) since this is our first Thursday, Thursday event, I figured why not go old school wrestling territories. Now, many wrestling fans that listen to us are of the younger persuasion, but we thank you anyway. But I always think it's good to go back to our history, even if it's just to learn from our mistakes. Well, why not the territorial promotions in which today's current products, you can kind of sort of say that we have that now with AEW, Impact, 
WWE, yada, yada, yada. But we have a heavyweight panel here, and we're going to talk about all things under the territorial umbrella, which the NWA, for most people that may or may not know, started in the late 40s after World War II. But we will get into all this. So let me go ahead and introduce our panel. And this is going to be fun for me to get everybody's perspectives because everybody is in different parts of the country and even internationally, because why not go for the heavy hitters? First panelist, Dr. Mike Lano, who you've heard on the show before. He is a writer for several websites and been a photographer. He has been featured in many different projects currently, such as Dark Side of the Ring, a Biographies, E, MTV, Reels. He's been associated with the Cauliflower Alley Club as the board photographer since 87. Dr. Mike, hello. Hey, everybody. Well, I kind of co-host at least the wrestling shows uh, with you. Yes. But I have to salute you, Jonathan, because I didn't have any part. I sort of helped you with maybe the topics, but you got all of these heavy hitters, these great historians from their time. Well, I'll let you go on. Brian Solomon. It doesn't get bigger than the the folks we have. So we will go to that gentleman now, as you speak, Bertrand Herbert. He is an You've heard him on before. He has written several heavyweight books as well with his part partner pat and even solo stuff as well the latest thing that i saw solo of mr herbert's is the accepted pat patterson book but he's also been involved with the mad dog maurice for sean's story mad dogs midgets and screw jobs he was also involved with pat with the eighth wonder of the world the true story of andre the giant Good evening, sir, and thank you for joining. Good evening. Thank you for the invite. Yes, uh, Andrew the Giant was actually the last book that uh, we had out about uh, two years ago now. Um, I have another one, Justin Trent, for a local star here, uh, but that just came out. But uh, for the English-speaking fan, uh, Andrew the Giant, uh, The Eighth Wonder of the World, is our latest uh, outing. I've been bugging Bertrand Hibert. Uh, Carpentier, I, I would give anything for a Carpentier book. I second that. I'm with you. <laughs> but yeah, since he's here solo, I wanted to say solely he was involved with Pat Patterson's book. That's why I put that out front. But you just heard another panelist here who we had on a couple months ago, Mr. Brian R. Solomon, who is an educator and author of several books on sports entertainment. He is a regular contributor to Pro Wrestling Illustrator and Inside the Ropes. He has his own podcast as well. And seven years, he was an editor over at WWE Magazine. But some of the books he was involved with were Pro Wrestling FAQs, WWE Legends. But his latest book that you might be aware of is the original Sheik's book. So, Brian, thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's uh, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original chic. Quite a mouthful. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the next gentleman who I've known since probably the longest 
out of everybody, Mr. Nikita Bresnikov. I've known him since we were joking days on the East Coast in another profession. He is an author and historian as well. His book is When It Was Real, which is available through Crowbar Press. And he focused on the Northeast as well. Nikita, how are you? Beautiful. Happy to be here. Great people. Thank you. Absolutely. And our final panelist. He is a writer, researcher, historian, and a lecturer on Victorian English crime. And things like Jack the Ripper murders and has a podcast of his own. And he is also from the Wayne capital of the world in Buffalo, New York. But his specialties, I know, are being in boxing, boxing history, and his partner in crime for his latest book, The Wrestler's Wrestler, brought him back into the wrestling field. Mr. Brian Young, how are you? I am great, and I'm so glad you didn't say in the reason I said a heavyweight panel, Brian Young, because I saved the big fat guy for last. But no, it is such a pleasure (sighs) to be on, and everybody on here, I'm big fans of all of you. Mike, I know we we, we email back and forth quite a bit, but... Yeah, we talked. um, Brian, I gotta tell you something. Blood and Fire is my go-to book of the year. Wow. Bertrand, I loved The Eighth Wonder, but that's last year. And my go-to book last year was The Wrestlers (laughs) Wrestlers, Masters of the Craft Professional (laughs) Wrestling, with The Eighth Wonder being second, but Blood and Fire, just bravo, Brian. That book is amazing. Thank you. I I really appreciate that. That was uh, my labor of love. I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. Right. I watched all that stuff. Pedro Martinez, Johnny Powers. Yep. Well, oh, I got some, I got some Pedro Martinez stories. <laughs> Martinez. Never yeah. could. Yeah, Pedro Martinez. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. He wouldn't pronounce it Martinez like Luis, but uh, the Hispanic way. He was trying to he was trying to blend in. What can you say back then? He owed a days. lot of those boys money, is the yep. <laughs> maybe that. <laughs> Well, like I said, we're going to be talking the territories, and obviously this heavyweight panel has different perspectives from different territories, and obviously they are well-versed in everything, but I want to start with a breakdown of territories and locations, talking about some of the most influential promoters, locations, and whatnot. But before we get into that, I think, or as we get into that, I should say, is, and I want to have Dr. Mike start, we lost a heavyweight in terms of promoters and wrestlers last week in Mr. Inoki. So, being that you're my Japanese guy, what can you say about the gentleman? Um, let me just preface this quickly, saying that the territories is a complex there's a lot of meat here, which is why that's terrific. I've only seen some screamer, screener, screeners. Obviously, I watched the full episode on Memphis. They're having part two uh, on the Andy Kaufman thing. I thought it was terrific because that's all you need. You just need the boys at a round table. 
And maybe Memphis is unique because the best storytellers other than Bill Dundee were at that table, including Baller and Jerry Jarrett and Dutch and Jimmy Hart and Jeff. You may not be able to find that unless you assemble like for Mid-Atlantic, Flair, Steamboat, Sarge, David Crockett, that's probably all that's left, maybe Jake. But you know, getting to Inoki, and I have to speak at Gene LaBelle's Memorial, it's an invitation only thing, only because it's a small venue, his old dojo this weekend. But the parallelisms, I was asked to be on Busted Open twice. All of you guys, especially Brian and Bertrand, I think have been on Busted Open to talk about Inoki twice this week since his passing. Uh, a, it was cool that the Hunter regime, Triple or WWE, mentioned that he was a sort of outlaw, but he was a champion. Backlund dropped clean to him in Japan, but uh, Inoki and Gene LaBelle are inextricably linked. I'll get into that later if we have time, because Inoki would send guys very quickly after he started New Japan, December 72, which we can get into, do you? We, we've got to consider Japan and obviously Canada as part of the, all of those, I mean, there were a zillion great promotions and offices in Canada. A lot of folks don't even talk about the Maritimes or the Montreal War, the Vachon's Rougeau or Winnipeg, Tomco, so much great stuff there. But Inoki, getting back to that, he would send guys either that, were way green, like a Mr. Seiki in 74. He sent him to our office for Gene to finesse. He then sent him to Leroy McGurk's territory. We became a tag champion. This was a clumsy, horrific jobber in 73, 74 for us. Who does he become later on? But Mr. Pogo for FMW and some of the hardcore promotions of Japan. All thanks to Gene and Inoki initially. And there were so many others. Gene would finesse, uh, Inoki would send, uh, Obviously, Alan Koaj, bad news, and later Judo Chris Adams, who Gene had finesse and, and you know friendship and closeness with those guys, and he would get, get them ready for their New Japan tours in turn. So it was a two-way street. There were many, many others. So a young Tetsumi Fujinami was sent in for Gene to finesse before he even appeared on our TV or, or our Olympic Auditorium big venue shows. Uh, Choshu, Ricky Choshu came in. But Inoki, it, it's so hard to encapsulate all of him, but the guy is irreplaceable promoter. It'd be like Vince Sr. and Vince Jr. in one body combined with Luthez or, or maybe, I don't know, many other folks. I mentioned Luthez because Inoki, uh, here's a, something people, at least on Busted Open Hand, thought about. He was so such a Thez mark. When he started New Japan, the two guys he went to, as all of you know, to give his promotion credibility. They were on most all of his tours the first year, 14, 15 months, Thez and Carl Gotch, before he would bring in the show busy, you know, not hooker shooter types and Johnny Valentine, Tiger Jeet Singh. Uh, he was able to get Abby over from all Japan and, uh, and, and obviously Johnny Powers and Pat Patterson in 74 and stuff. But he was such a Thez person and, and wanted that, you know, that strong style that Stez and Gotch were able to give him that credibility, whereas Babu was pretty much using, continually using the Ricky Doze guys for all Japan, uh, that he wore, you know, he mimicked Stez's beautiful robe. He had a silk robe with a colorful towel around his neck. And he would, in turn, so he took that from Thez, he passed it on to Dragon Tetsumi Fujinami, who in turn passed it on to, and they worked with Okada of today, where's the same thing. So there was four guys there, uh, but that's just scratching the surface, the Ali thing. So Gene LaBelle, 
they were so close. Gene from 63 on, whenever Inoki would come in, he came into our territory more so than he would later on and try WF and WWF. Inoki was like a regular fixture. So from 63 on, Gene would always tell Cal Eaton, his stepfather, I'll go pick up, you know, Kanji from the uh, airport. And uh, that's what he did. And in turn, Gene and Inoki verified this, that Inoki helped teach Gene Japanese. And he was the go-to guy, the guy he trusted to be the ref, the actual conduit communicator in the Ali fight, which you know went south and, and Gene had a lot to say about that. Uh, so is Inoki's ir irreplaceable from the 1996 World Wrestling Peace Festival in Los Angeles, which actually led to the two days, the bigger, and that's what Inoki called it initially, the Peace Festival in North Korea, the two-day thing, that entity, uh, which apparently the, there's no footage of the whole show, which uh, Eric Bischoff was saying the other day, really should be watched. Somebody should have that footage, but uh, there is no replacing. I'm sure you guys would have a lot to say. There's no replacing Antonio Inoki for all of the stuff that he did he wasn't a perfect person he had you know uh, nine lives i'm sure a lot of you guys bertrand and, and brian can talk better uh, if we had more time on uh, inoki's nine lives some of his failures you know he had backers and all of this stuff something of note of interest if i can squeeze this in is that bruno told me and any of you guys that might have talked to bruno regularly he told me and, and other guys like uh, another historian uh, ed Gurria, the phantom that he initially was sought out by uh, i guess uh, vince senior initially wanted bruno ali he couldn't find the financial backers and inoki and all of his folks mostly brazil and argentinian money marks got behind that and that's how it got switched to that. And then when Vince Sr. saw like the advance for the closed circuit around at least the Northeast uh, wasn't doing the numbers that he wanted, he was getting frantic. That's when they brought in, you know, the idea of the Andre Wepner, so having a live card. And that's when Vince Sr. went in there against both Carol Sammartino and Bruno's doctors, you know, begging him to, you know, take the halo off from the accidental broken neck from Stan Hansen and do the Hansen match. And it took a lot of cajoling and all that stuff because the doctors kept saying, no way should he get out of, leave this hospital at all, let alone get in a ring and maybe pitter pat with uh, Stan Hansen for that thing. So, but what an incredibly unique person. I'll shut up. Does anyone else want to talk about Anoki or there? Uh, yeah, I, I, I would love to point out that I might be lucky enough to be one of the only people on this panel that has written about the Anoki Ali fight from both sides, from the boxing side and the wrestling side, um, primarily from the boxing side. And I was quite, I wouldn't say close friends, but close acquaintances with Angelo Dundee, Ali's trainer. So I got all the dirt on that fight from that side. Um, the Bruno rumors, all those other rumors, I hate to say, were rumors. Ali never had any negotiations with Bruno San Martino, never had any with um, Terry Funk, which is where they claim it originally started. Terry Funk challenged him. It all started with Anoki, um, who publicly challenged Ali. Ali needed the money. He was an XL. They begged him not to do it. According to Dundee, it was a supposed to be a work and when ali got there a few days before he found out they were going to double cross him 
that's why it turned into what it did. And that's why there's that weird, and I write about it in The Wrestler's Wrestler, that nobody involved on either side could tell you what the rules of the fight were because they kept changing them. Every day they were adding or taking away rules. Blassie, Freddie Blassie was there for a lot of the so-called planning, whatever. That's yeah. a mess too, according to Fred. Yeah, and they said no one knows what the actual rules were. But Ali, they were agreeing, and Ali was going to drop it. Ali was going to take the fall That's for, a crazy. <laughs> for the money because he needed the money. And he figured, wrestler, Japanese guy, no one's going to care or know. Because Ali loved wrestling. You got to remember, Ali credits Gorgeous George for inventing Muhammad Ali. Right. I mean, that's where he took the character from. Now, but why he got on the vine was because yeah. I can tell you, because I was a kid in 76 as a fan, we didn't really know much about Inoki. Ali, we loved. I mean, that's yeah. not the world. Ali and Frazier was a big deal. But it's like we didn't have cable in Baltimore, New York. They had it. So you didn't see a lot of Inoki. And it was dying, literally. And that's when they did go to the hospital. And I did know Bruno well. Today's his birthday, by the way. Yeah. And he said he should have never done it. And years later, it just it came back to haunt him. He should have never got out of that bed. But they said, stay in the hospital bed, Bruno. But don't worry about it because the company will be gone when you come back. And it's he had to do it. it was, we should bring this back to the territories. But... Uh, maybe even Bertrand, because I didn't know what was happening up in Canada where they showed it. Most of the territories tried to beef up the, you know, the, like the closed circuit where the fans were paying. So they would come in for Los Angeles, say my two home base territories shooting ringside for the program, L.A. and San Francisco. They had the closed circuit. You went to our venues, L.A., the Olympic Auditorium, which was our crown jewel, San Francisco and for Northern California, the Cow Palace out of all of Roy Shire's venues. They had matches prior to that, typically, depending on the territory, three to four max. Then they would show the footage of the three main ones, the Wepner, Andre, obviously, uh, the uh, the Andre and, and Bruno and Hanson. But let me throw to Bertrand and obviously uh, Jonathan is the host. But did were the the say in Montreal and Toronto and Calgary, et cetera, do you know if they had live matches or were they showing the thing up there too? Uh, the whole uh, in Montreal, there was no showing of the Inoki match. Uh, the territory was in a, a very bad period at that point. There was no one strong enough to, to try to, to present that. So there was no live show to, to beef it up or to make it uh, an event per se. So it, I don't know about the other territory, about Toronto or what happened in those places. Let me just spit out. So I bring it back to the territories for Jonathan because I lived them. That was my bucket list. I didn't get to go to all of them. And Calgary I didn't get to go to until 95 when I was hired to be the photographer for uh, Stu's 80th birthday. So they had a big show for the fans, but then they had a private family party. But I got to stay at the mansion for two nights. I finally got to see Calgary wrestling and blah, blah, blah. But the, the territories, it, it, it's debatable. I don't know if we're going to include like IWE in Japan. There were three in Japan at, at, when we're talking classic territories. That was AWA affiliated, obviously New Japan, All Japan. Uh, but, you know, there were so many and there was X amount under the NWA's wing with Munchnik. But for example, 
a highly regarded one few talk about is the World Wrestling Alliance in Los Angeles that was Cal Eaton and Jules Strongbow. They had a world champion, a tag champion. They put the strap, speaking of Inoki, on Ricky Dozan, his trainer, twice, and he would defend it. Uh, and that's that basically helped him create his promotion, JWA, JWF in Japan, uh, with the help of like Blassie and the Dusex, and obviously a little later, Dick Byer as a destroyer, and Thez helped out. Uh, so, for all of you, I could throw to say Bertrand and uh, uh, Brian, are we going to group the three Japanese territories? Are we going to group Australia, uh, Jim Barnett, Mark Lewin? Are we keeping it solely to, uh, you know, obviously the Mexico, UWA and Paco Alonso Luteroth? Are we going to just say Canada and US is what we're focusing on? Well, I was actually going to, if I could step back in here, Mike, is since we've been talking a little bit of Canada as well, and Mrs. Lano in the background, hello, <laughs> she popped in. But uh, I wanted to stick with the Canadian offices as well. We can throw Mexico and all in there as well, as you were asking. But Montreal was. There's a global family of territories. Most people just think of yes. That's not correct. We have to, we cannot. Forget because every many. Sunday in Toronto, they would have AWA, WWWF, and NWA. So it's perfect. Exactly. But Montreal wise, and obviously from the book that beat Richard and uh, Pat put out, which is the first time I got connected with those guys, they had the infamous longtime rivalry of. Grand Prix and International for a while there. Toronto was a big deal. But influential-wise, how big was Montreal and the lasting impacts of those territories in particular? Well, I mean, we could be there for hours uh, speaking just about Canada and the different offices there. So, uh, I mean, if we want to take Montreal... As an example, uh, yeah. and full disclosure, before you get into that, full disclosure, when I asked him to join us, that was the first thing he said to me. We could be just, I showed him some of the notes that I had so far, and he said, Man, we could be here for seven hours just on all that. But go ahead. So, I mean, as far as Montreal, after the Quinn era, I mean, like any other territories, there was a little bit of a downturn until the all-star wrestling with the Rougeau started, and then it was followed by Yvon Robert and the Vachon starting the opposition of Grand Prix wrestling. And then, you know, Montreal at that point was drawing 2 million people at, on television watching the, tele, the, the boat shows. So that that was a lot, and it it's the golden age as far as the the, the getting the eyeballs on, on the the product, which is always key uh, into uh, as, uh, of the those territories back then. I mean, Gino Brito told us that once he finally got television steady in Montreal, it took six months, and then this saw a turnaround at at the gate. So that that gives us a little idea. And I mean, and that that war between Grand Prix and uh, All Star, I mean, that brought Andre the Giant to North America, uh, where he got his start with Grand Prix, and and then Andre was the 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 greatest attraction for the territory system because 
those territories were uh, their own little bubble of reality. Uh, and there was no interconnection. It was very hard for, for fans, or except for the extremely uh, dedicated fans to get news and get footage or anything from any other territories back then. So when Andre was showing up, nobody knew what happened in other places and they, they could repeat program, they could repeat ideas with different other players with Andre. Uh, and, and Andre was that perfect star because, you know, as, as much as he was a draw and, and he was, everybody wanted to see him if he was going to be there every week or every taping or every big show, well, you know, he, he would have lost something. But when Andre came to town, Sheriff was in town and everybody could not miss that show. I mean, as far as Gino was explaining to us, I mean, by even by the, the early 80s, it made a huge difference for territory to bring Andre on top for a big show, let's say Easter Monday or Christmas show or, or all those big shows from back from the territorial day. So uh, that that's a, a glory period. And, you know, as much as we would like for it to, to return, even if we consider all elite a, a bubble and WWE, another bubble, even NXT, another bubble and, and Japan, uh, new Japan, a bubble and, and all of that, there's still a connection. It's easy. You can in two clicks, see everything you want to see almost it's not on youtube it's on new japan world if it's not there it's on the wwe network and, and at some point uh, I'm, I'm sure all elite and ring of honor product will be available in in the same fashion um so it it, it, it is different it, it's the toothpaste out of the the tube it's never gonna go back uh it is what it is it, it's it's fantastic for people who lived it i that's my, always my answer was the best wrestling it's the one you saw when you first started to love wrestling so for for us it's the territory day it's it's the, the first thing that we saw well you, you what i'm have... thinking of it because we're talking the territories obviously folks you would have firsthand acknowledgement of this as far as canadian wrestling and such how much of an uptick would you say there has been as far as viewership and such, when you have guys like Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens and stuff, probably from the Montreal area and Canada itself helped the product and the fanship up there. Obviously, it made a big difference. I mean, there had not been a French uh, WWE on television for decades. And then, you know, WWE is back with a French team announcing uh, for, for Monday Night Raw. And, and that's directly because there's a Sami Zayn and there's a Kevin Owens there. And, and, and it's special. I mean, even the last show here, I mean, both Kevin and, and Sami shared a moment off camera and, and the crowd. I mean, it, it's, it's really, it's the territory system. Once again, I mean, it's the local hero. That's like, that's exactly that. I mean, it's uh, it's the same thing when George St. Pierre became a, a big star in the UFC or uh, when Jacques Villeneuve, the son, became the world champion in Formula One. I mean, those are our guys. So locally, I mean, it, it's much like, as far as Quebec goes in, within Canada, it's a lot like Japan or Mexico. It's much closer to that as far as the territory than the rest of Canada, which has become pretty much, you know, uh, an extension of the United States as far as the, the, the wrestling product. Our local guy 
still make a huge difference in, in how the business is perceived and the opportunity the business will, will receive from locally because there is local star that outside of the rest. Of Don't forget PCO. But Jacques for decades, once International went away, he would have these shows and they would draw the biggest gate for any non-WWF, WWE. And Jacques did that consistently as fundraisers. And that was huge globally. Well, yeah, he, he managed to pull out Rabbit out of his hat for a long, long time. Uh, based on the, the family name. Uh, he's the last Rougeau. Uh, and, and to this day, in the last year, he resurrected that. So uh, much smaller, but he still uh, res resurrected that. So that that's what Jacques does. Uh, he, he's a he's a great uh, seller. Mm -hmm. Mind if I jump in and ask uh, Bertrand a question? When I was researching my book, I was talking to uh, to the Baron Baron von Raschke, and he was telling me how you know Mad Dog Vachon took him up to Montreal, and he was still green. Mm -hmm. But he took him up to Montreal because, hey, you look like a good German. We'll be a good tag team. The whole Mutt and Jeff thing. And he said the territory exploded when they got back there. And it, yeah. was, it was in a lull, and it just blew up so big that people started coming from all the other territories to work Montreal because the crowds got so big so fast. I mean, they, they, they did strike lightning in a bottle when he brought the, the Baron to, to Montreal as his partner. Uh, Baron moved there. I think his first daughter were, was born in Montreal. Uh, he has found memories of, of Montreal. And, and basically, I mean, what what stopped originally that that, that run was the Mad Dog Vachon car accident. Yeah. Uh, from there, I mean, the Baron came back on, on a regular basis. And, and when the Grand Prix All-Star War started, I mean, the, the, ter the territory was literally on fire for two years. Um, but, I mean, that that's a, that's a great example of a guy who got a start here. I mean, the list is, is long from the Baron to even Yokozuna getting some early shots here in Montreal as Kokina. Uh, to you know, uh, we had Alofa who became Rikishi, and you know, with all of those guys, you can go back. I mean, Toshiaki Kawada wrestled in Montreal in the uh, the towards the end of '86 uh, with the international wrestling. Uh, so it you never knew, never knew who you were seeing and what they were about to become. So it's, uh, that was also one of the beautiful things from the territory days is that by the time that everything went national, uh, you ended up with, with guys that you had seen here that became your guys that, that were making it in the national stage. And I have one more, one more quick thing for you before we move on to another territory being from Buffalo. I need to hear someone with the Quebecois accent say, let's go Sabres. Let's go Sabres. <laughs> <laughs> let's go Mets. Let's oh, go Sabres. Just... Come on. It... Let's go Sabres. Well, I don't know. I want to South. Oh, hell. But I didn't know how we're going hockey, but that's a whole nother show for another day. That's for sure. But 
And I hope we can get Nikita and Brian involved here as well. Brian Solomon. Yeah. And obviously there's Brian's book on the Sheik with Detroit. And obviously Nikita grew up in the New York Territory, being he was in Baltimore and such. Mike's in California, and he was talking about Mr. Inoki in Japan and such. But what other territories would you say were major in being influential for where the product went and has eventually became? You mean promoters? I could just throw out there. Promoters, quickly. territories, anything. Well, I would say territories. Much stick at the top, and I'll let you guys spit out the rest. All right, now, see, for the Northeast, forget Madison Square Garden. We all know about that. Boom, beautiful. Mm-hmm. But I, went, I was working for a bond company in 1977, and the Capital Wrestling Corporation bond came through. Vince McMahon's the president, Willie Gilsenberg, Phil Zacco. They were all under the same banner, but, like, Phil Zacco ran Baltimore, Washington, Philadelphia. You could do whatever you wanted within reason. You didn't change any of the major titles, but we would get feuds in Baltimore, like Ernie Ladd against Professor Tanaka because they had a blow up in a tag match. Nobody else knew about that. Again, pre-internet, unless you had a telephone. And if you made a long distance call, your parents would break your neck because it was so expensive. So you didn't get information. So they could do that, keep Baltimore happy, like Bobo Brazil. When we had Pedro as champion, it was great, but he wasn't drawing in Baltimore. So for that summer of 73, Phil Zacco brought in Bobo Brazil. He really wasn't in the territory, but he brought him in from Detroit. He would run Baltimore once a month, and it was fine. Then you would have with people up in Boston would do their thing. No big deal. Abe uh, Ford. Ford. Abe Ford. Ford would do his thing up in Boston. It was still part of the same banner, but it was, you're going to do your own little thing up in Boston. Bruno was running Pittsburgh at the same time before, believe it or not, when he became champion, he was actually in Indianapolis as tag champion with Dick the Bruiser. And things were so bad with Pedro and I'm not knocking. I loved him, especially as intercontinental champion, but things just weren't working. So Bruno's like, what the hell? I'm, in Indianapolis, I got a nice thing on. It's like, yeah, but we need you to come back. So it was so hard for him. He takes the belt December 10th, and he's still tag champions in Indianapolis with Dick the Bruiser. And then it's like, he's just running around like a wild man trying to make it all connect. And when you say territories, that's what brought us the Valiant Brothers because Dick, it all started, and this gets a little convoluted, but the Bear Man, he heard from Bobby Heenan about they knew Jimmy Valiant, but this guy, Johnny Valiant, working as John Sullivan at the time, he said, I think he'd be good to team up with Jimmy. So Dick's work in Pittsburgh with Bruno in a tag match. It was September the 7th of 1973. And he said, I'll be there. Bring this kid in. He was Pittsburgh oriented and we'll do like a, a trial. Let's go give him a, 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 an audition. So they get in together. And I've got a clip in my book. It's got John L. Sullivan, Jim Valiant, and there they are together. And it was so good. Dick the Bruiser said, you're coming back with me to Chicago next week. And off they went. And then I think when Bruno got to working with them in Indianapolis, they showed up in WWWF in March, and the rest is history. So those territories, when they work together, 
even though, again, they were under one banner, but you could do your own little thing as long as it was okay and you didn't stray too far from the storylines. It was beautiful. And we, the fans, were so happy for it and benefited from it. It was great. Well, the, the way that uh, – go on, Brian. Were you going to say something? Well, I was actually going to bring it to you, believe oh, wow. it or not, because I was going <laughs> to say, to me, when I think of the territories, in my mind as, as a historian goes to the NWA banner with all their territories and then the WWWF or capital up the Northeast, uh, Vern having his thing in the Midwest. And the territories of the under the NWA banner were so great because, like Nikita said, you could send people to other places to work on who their gimmick was going to be, what their gimmick was going to be, learn the trade. If you trusted each other's promoters, you know, Johnny Valentine got his son up to Detroit to work with the Sheik to learn the business as, come on, what was his name? <laughs> Babyface Nelson. Babyface yeah. Nelson. Yeah, he. he and later that. in Buffalo, uh, he teamed with uh, Donnie Fargo as Johnny Fargo, the Fargo brother. As Johnny and Fargo. Exactly. He went into Dallas once Johnny had the accident. And Johnny managed him as his brother. He didn't want. He was managing yeah. him for Fritz as as his brother, not his legit son. But yeah, but so in Buffalo, here's an interesting story. Very quickly, I can do this fast. Johnny Powers and Pedro Martinez promoted the NWF, sort of working, but also at times at war with the Sheik, but traded most of the talent in Ohio and the Buffalo promotion. And they did the three ring super card of wrestling. Ask me and Napolitano about that one. Uh, that made all of the magazines, which is how we got our info because we couldn't make phone calls. But Johnny Powers, the promotion NWF going downhill in 74, he sells his singles and his tag titles, NWF World and NWF World Tag Team titles to Inoki, they would later be renamed the IWGP title. So Inoki, uh, Inoki takes it from Johnny Powers directly in a New Japan ring. The tag titles were dropped by two guys who had never, and Bertrand is going to laugh at this one, who had never even teamed before, but they were billed as NWF World Tag Champions. They brought them in to LA so Inoki and Sakaguchi could take the straps off them, film it, and you know say they were the new, and it was called, renamed the NWF International World Tag Titles. So... Johnny Powers, now living in Toronto, uh, and Pat Patterson, never teamed before a day in their life. They put the straps on them. So it was like a, wasn't a phantom title change, but a phantom tag team dropping to Inoki and Sakaguchi in LA at the Olympic Auditorium in 74, oddly for no reason with Joe Lewis's rep. You usually only brought in Joe Lewis or Jersey Joe Walcott when there was like some major feud and you needed a special rep. But Joe Lewis, the rep for that thing, uh, undercard, Pampiro Furpo debuts for us. No one, none of the marks knew who he was. He takes the title from Ernie Ladd. And that was one of those territory bullshit international uh, year-long tournament. It was like phantom tournament. It's taken a phantom Rio title. de Janeiro. <laughs> no, that was <laughs> because Pat Patterson told me the closest he ever got to Rio de Janeiro, when he wasn't asked by Vince and Brian may know this when he wasn't needed by vince as vince's number two guy in creative etc cetera, etc cetera, he was taking cruises once he lost his his partner louis he would take all these cruises just to sing karaoke and so on a cruise near rio that's the closest he ever got never that was bullshit that was i don't know why they couldn't just put the strap or do a tournament there and have pat as champ why they had to come up with the 
we have, but the NWF World and Tag Titles renamed, those are what we know today as the IWGP Championships in uh, New Japan. It's, it's nuts. Now, they screwed up because they, they announced him on the August 27th card against Backlund. That was number three out of the four-match run. And new Intercontinental Champion. And then they always announced that it happened September the 1st of 79. It's like, but they already announced it August 27th. So and wasn't that a way to turn him face? So, I mean, it, Pat was the perfect person to have that, that working man's championship put on it. Later that year with, with Lou Albano is when they turned him face. Okay. But to my point, and what I wanted to ask Brian, if I could, was. I don't know if you can. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Give it a a shot, Brian. You know, what have we got to lose? Exactly. When (sighs) the NWA territories were all separate but working together technically, obviously a lot of them didn't get along with each other. But they all seem to work well with with the Sheik, with Eddie Farhat, which is unusual because I don't think people liked him so much on a personal level. Why was he able to work with all the other territories on a business level, Brian? Because he drew money. I mean, <laughs> he made money everywhere he went. So, you know, they could hold their nose and 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 book him. But, uh, you know, he was not the most popular among the promoters. Um, I definitely got the sense, even having access to some letters and things, which I didn't put all in the book because there's just too much stuff, that they kind of talked behind his back. They sort of all had kind of gripes with him. And in, in those days, especially, they weren't thrilled about a lot of them weren't thrilled about the gimmick. Like we all know how much Nick basically banned him in St. Louis. He went on a rampage in a match with Pat O'Connor and things like that. But when it came time to make money, like I said, they would hold their nose because they knew that wherever he went, they could pack a house. They didn't even need a program. They didn't even need to announce a match. All they needed to say was the Sheik is coming. And 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 just based on that, it was it, in a way similar to Andre the Giant, just this phenomenon where all you had to know was he's coming to our town. He's coming to our territory. So, I mean, how could you say no to that? If you look at Meltzer's done this over the years, but like breaking down the year by year, who are the hottest box office attractions in wrestling in, in the territorial era for a lot of it, it's Bruno or it's the Sheik. And, and uh, you know, and for the Sheik to be able to do that as a heel, especially, is a major accomplishment because if you're Bruno, everybody's turning out because they want to see you win, right? They want to see you keep winning, keep winning, keep winning. With someone like the Sheik, they're coming out there because they desperately want you to lose, to get killed and destroyed, and it never happens. So he just goes from place to place to place, and people just keep this dream alive that he's going to lose one day, and he never does. He was Mr. able to Young. work with them all on a level of, as a promoter too, because people would trust him enough to send their talent up there to work with him. Yes, there were a lot of people that got their start in Detroit, like you mentioned, Greg Valentine, uh, Johnny Valiant also got a lot of opportunities early in his career from the Sheik. In fact, I think um, the story was, and Mike, you might have actually told this story of how. Um, uh, or maybe I'm, I'm trying to think of who it was when I when I was writing the book, someone told me the story about how basically, you know, everybody knows that Valiant John Sullivan, I, I forget what his what his birth name was. He went to uh, Bruno. He, 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 he basically worked for Bruno in Pittsburgh because Bruno, right. guys like Johnny DeFazio, he was so unique in the guys that Vince Sr. would allow to promote his own town because 
he was barely using, he didn't have that many tri-WF capital sports guys. He had a lot of guys he was cultivating and John L. Sullivan was already there. Right. But, um, but Bruno kind of introduced him to Vince Sr. And then Vince right. Sr. basically sent him out to the Sheik for seasoning. And also, I think part of it, too, was the Sheik was booking these cards that were just monumental. Like he would have, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 match cards at Kobo Arena at its height. And he was just always on the lookout for talent. So he was more than willing to to give people a shot. I mean, you had the Hells Angels with the, the future Chris Colt being half of that team. Uh, so many people that that got opportunities in the Detroit area. Um, Dusty Rhodes. Gardner, his own gardener right. working as J.B. Psycho. I told you this right. story. J.B. Psycho, his gardener, who shockingly, the Sheik had so many people turn on him and and like for real and, and try to run opposition and go to other places. And the hilarious thing is one of these startups in his own backyard, um, I think it was the one that uh, that um, uh, Mark Lewin was involved with and Tim Brooks. There were a few of them. They got a ton of Detroit big time wrestling people to jump ship. They even got JB Psycho, the Sheik's own gardener, the man's gardener. He was he doing a crazy man act with bleach blonde hair. Right. And he went and he jumped. But also another one that I didn't want to forget too: uh, the Texas Outlaws, Murdoch and Dusty Rhodes. They got one of their first opportunities in the Detroit territories. They were NWA World Tag Team Champions in Detroit uh, when they weren't, you know, they weren't that big yet. That was one of the places where they got where they got their first exposure. One of the most famous managers of all time, Dr. Mike, the Grand Wizard, Ernie Roth. He started up there. The nicest guy, yeah. uh, Mr. Clean, with his first identity, Abdullah Farouk the Weasel. He had his only wrestling match. Because I, I kept asking Dave, didn't he tag with Sheik or do anything where he wouldn't come into the ring? No, in L.A., it was in San Bernardino, April of 1972, the Sheik and uh, Abdul Farouk against uh, uh, the Tolis brothers, who were baby faces. And Ernie only got into the ring and had his clothes torn off at the very end <laughs> of the match. But beloved, I don't think in today's crazy PC world, he could use the Grand Wizard title, but... Ah! No, but and Brian, you know why the Sheik also drew money? Because we're nuts, and we knew there would be blood, and that's what we of went course. to see. We oh, right, the, the, the fire, the fire, the violence, uh, the, 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 violence. the, the blood sport. Let me ask all of you guys, though, for the territory. Let's just say pick the 70s territories. My pick for the two greatest 70s territories heels, in no particular order, Sheik and Killer Kowalski. Oh, wow. That's Killer tough to beat. George the Animal Steel, too. But he, didn't work, he didn't work everywhere. I mean, Kowalski worked for Eddie Graham. People yeah, forget Kowalski that. worked everywhere. And then he came into us and took the book over for a little while in L.A. And Montreal. Well, wait a minute. George got to start in Detroit. He, yeah. he started yeah. up there, too. And I shot the only time I got to Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, I guess it was 74, heel, heel, uh, Kowalski against the Sheik, which was incredible. Igor and Abby underneath that. Chris Tolson, you got to throw in Mad Dog there. I'm throwing in Mad Dog. I'm throwing in uh, the Baron and down in Florida, Buddy Colt. I don't think anybody drew heat like Buddy Colt did in Florida. Here's a topic because Eddie Graham wanted to put the bond. Now, here's a weird thing. So these guys, 
promoters may not have gotten along, but they had to go to the NWA meetings. And later on, I think it was 77, 78 was the first time that Sam Munchnik and Vern Gagne, who were very close, and they were close also with Bob Geigel from Kansas City, they got Vince Sr. to finally come back and he started regularly going to annual NWA Vegas meetings. However, so they all would get together there. Eddie Graham, uh, before Bobby Shane and, the, and Buddy Colt were in that accent, he wanted to put the bond on either one of them. And that was the purpose of those meetings. You guys can get into it. But I just want to say, so you have them cooperating at annual NWA meetings, sometimes trading talent. You remember for Vince Sr., Eddie Graham, Vern, LaBelle were sending talent in. But when it was time to battle Vince Jr. in 84, those same promoters, guys like Bill Watts and Jerry, Jared, and Vern, they couldn't get, and Fritz, they couldn't get along and co-work, cooperate and work together to battle. It's insane. Well, they had no Sam Muchnick. That's a huge loss. I mean, he was, he was the glue holding it all together. I mean, the reason he never stepped down, I mean, he hated, he hated doing, being the president of the NWA it was torture, but he viewed it as if I don't do this, this thing's going to collapse. And he was right because then it just, it gradually, he sort of steps away in the mid seventies and it just gradually starts to deteriorate the first They even change how they're booking the world champion and the world title. They start hot shotting. There's a lot of different things that much Nick wouldn't have done if he was in charge. And then it's just ripe for the picking. They're so vulnerable, you know, at that point. First off, I kissed your butt over your book. Now I got to say, you just brought up the point I wanted to bring up that the territory started to collapse after Mushnick. Yes. And for the audience who doesn't really understand that, um, who might not know what we're talking about, uh, just super briefly, the promoters that ran the different territories in the NWA would actually vote on who the president was going to be and actually be the president of the whole organization. And Sam kept getting elected. Like Brian said, he didn't necessarily want to do it, but he kind of knew he had the responsibility to. Once he was out and it did start to collapse, they lasted 10 years, well, a little more than 10 years without him, never drawing like they did. Right. Who do you guys, and I want all of you to answer this one, who do you guys think could have kept it alive had they taken it over from Sam? It's a business of ego. So you have a bunch of promoters that all think they are the best, that they have the best ideas, then everybody else is an idiot. So you need a very special person to keep all of those guys working together and accepting, I mean, let, give, give me this, I'll get you this, and, and all of that. So was there really anyone that could bring them together? I mean, uh, when they all thought that the other one was an idiot. And, and, and that's the same reason things are getting out of hand today. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's the business of ego. And the people who have a great success are the people who get kept their ego in check. And as soon as the ego takes over, that's where we have a problem. And I don't think there was any promoter left at that point, I mean, even Jerry Jarrett tried again with Vern and, and, and after that 84 attempt, and, and it still didn't work. Well, it's never going to work with Vern. That could have done that that magic trick of, you know, getting him. The IWA tried to beat Vince Sr., and they got crushed. Who was Eddie it? Einhorn. No, no, I, 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 let me be real brief on that. It was Eddie Einhorn who co-owned the Chicago White Sox. I shot a ton of that stuff. His bookers, uh, 
from Pedro Martinez to George Cannon and Al Costello, but he tried taking on the NWA and Vince Sr. on his three outdoor uh, stadium shows. He was birthed out of Annie Gunkel taking on uh, the NWA Paul Jones, not the wrestler, but the promoter Paul Jones in Atlanta when they disrespected and didn't help out when Ray Gunkel died on a show, her husband. So she took them on, she beat him for nearly two years and Bruno and Ernie Ladd and other guys, Ox Baker came and helped her out, but they were beating attendance wise. So there, there is that, but I wanted to ask Bertrand because I know Tunney came to the NWA Vegas meetings, but I don't know, if, I know Stu did for several, not all of them, but I don't know if say any of the Montreal promoters because they weren't really tech, well, members, but it's my understanding and we've seen documents at the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame that seems to indicate that Rougeau would send someone uh, among others and Schmidt uh, as kind of a, just a presence more than anything else as far as uh, being... Because Leo Burke would come to... He came to X amount of them too from the Maritimes. Yeah. But the territory was never a member of the NWA under any promoters. Uh, they were always working with everyone either working with New York, working with Vern, or working with other, uh, with a Toronto office, and, and, or, or using their own connection to get uh, some of the top stars into Montreal, but it never worked under the NWA banner. And I should say everybody who was anybody during that Montreal, Rougeau, Vachon territory, you know, Grand Prix, uh, also everybody who was anybody came through there. Bruiser. Yeah. Blackjacks, you could go on and on. I mean, everybody was coming in there. And plus, Sean's had in, in house Don Leo, killer, everybody, amazing talent. And by the 80s, I mean, we in Montreal with international wrestling, we had world title matches with Bob Backlund, world title matches with Nick Bockwinkle, and world title matches with Rick Fair in a period of like four years. So, you know, everybody came through Montreal. It seems to have been some sort of a territory where you know everyone could come and, and, and go as they please without any uh, full-time uh, commitment by the promoter to any of the other organization almost like japan and that it was kind of a, a thing a bucket list i want to work canada and and look at uh, al tomko's winnipeg he had more interpromotional matches martel flair martel uh, bachwinkle he had title versus titles there even more so than eddie graham had in florida with like superstar graham harley uh, so winnipeg very important and overlooked an unusual territory because most people thought of it as an awa outreach of Vern, but there was a lot of nwa etc talent on winnipeg shows for a time yeah i mean it, it's interesting because of the interconnection of today it's hard to imagine where you can actually have and, and new york was a great example where part of the same territory could run their own set of angles or be because of the bicycling of the tape be late in some in certain towns on where the angle was or who the champion was so that was one of the beauty of the territory at, at the time that you could actually pull stuff like that or bringing a star for a specific town uh, in your territory because the promoter knew that he would draw so it's uh it's a it's a completely different era as far as as that goes uh, and, and it's fascinating to to look at it today because you know that's unimaginable basically because of 
how everything has evolved. And right, capital I'll answer it. Brian, Bill Watts could have taken over. Uh, that after Sam finally retired, and he, as Brian really put it well, was the glue that held everybody together for as long as he could. Then we had Fritz, we had Eddie Graham, and Bob Geigel as president, and that's when stuff went downhill. But and also, you, you, you also had Jim Barnett now booking the world champion instead of that was much Nick's job. And even just the whole philosophy of how they booked the title started to change where it became, you know, because Sam was always so concerned with the prestige of the belt and making it seem so important and having these long titles reigns and having champions that could work babyface or they could work kind of like a subtle heel style, not over the top, but just like a subtle style. Then it just became this model of we're going to have this touring heel champion that everybody's going to hate everywhere he goes. That was really kind of a post muchnik idea to, to book the title that way and and with barnett you were able to do things like oh since i also run georgia i'm going to do this quick title change with tommy rich just to boost my business up because i can because i control the title so there were a lot more of like these personal interests being uh indulged that i don't think muchnik would have stood for when he was in charge well that, that's what i meant i mean i don't think there was anybody that would have been able to run it the way Mushnick did. I mean, like Bertrand said, ego gets in the way. Right. I, I mean, I look at people that I thought might be good to take over. Bill Watts seemed to care more about keeping the business alive than his own personal territory and ego, but nobody could work with him because he'd beat the shit out of you. Right. I have a crazy theory that I, I don't think I've ever spoken out loud, and I might get pilloried and chased out of this panel when I utter this, but I think... In an alternate reality, let's say, because of his ambition and drive and forward-thinking attitude towards a changing business and his kind of natural leadership, if he wasn't a complete predator totally out for himself and his own interests, I think that Vincent K. McMahon could have been the person to do that because of the kind of personality that he had. If he was the kind of person that didn't want to put everybody else out of business, if he took that energy that he had of the of how pay-per-view was going to work and how merchandising was going to work. And, and let me tell you something, if anybody that has been here has been in a room when he walks in the room, he controls that room. Somebody like that could have done it if he was willing to use his powers for good instead of evil, he, he could have it done second it. second time because Ted Turner outspent him and beat right. him into the ground and he held his place because only one person was in charge of that company and it was him. Everything went through him and he waited. He was patient. And when they let those four young stallions go, Malenko, Benoit, Guerrero, I forget the fourth one. Right Saturn, now. Perry Saturn. Perry yeah. Saturn. It's because nobody was running that place. It was just all out of control. And it's like, you look right. at go. Are you simple? I mean, well, what, man, this is the future. And well, Vince just brought him in and right. he took back control and he never relented. And in the beginning of his expansion, he was reaching out to all these territorial promoters, making deals and trying to play nice. And but it was all kind of a subterfuge. So if the if what he was doing as a subterfuge had been genuine. If he really, truly wanted to work with all these regional promoters and territories and let them control their territories and use kind of a shared pool of talent, if, if the pitches that he made to them were honest, 
I think he may have had a chance of actually doing that if he didn't have this all or nothing zero sum game kind of mentality. Let me throw out something really quick. Munchnik, when he would take the summers off, nobody else did this. He would import other people's TV. He might have some All Japan TV, Detroit Chic TV, Bruiser TV, AWA, even Vince Senior TV to replace his wrestling at the chase when he wasn't taping for a whole summer. He would take X amount of months off. The thing uh, that Brian asked about uh, what started killing it, and you remember the Funk Brothers sold to... Uh, and, and Terry said this wisely, we knew with the advent starting around 76, 77 of TBS and national TV, and that was world championship, for, you know, Georgia championship, Ole Anderson, they saw the writing on the wall. So Dory and Terry, because senior attacks were the first to get out, they sold the territory to uh, Mulligan and Murdoch. And, and you know, the uh, world championship wrestling before Vince got national TV, was the thing for good or bad that killed, slowly killed the territories with guys like Don Owen, Portland and Jarrett and uh, Puerto Rico and a few other, uh, you know, hanging on till the bitter end because Roy Shire sold his territory. Then he, the houses were going down. It was January of 82. Then he goes and exposes the business to the LA Times and the San Francisco Chronicle, our most, you know, biggest newspapers in California, exposes the business knowing that Vern and Vince Jr., this is 82. We're going to come in uh, weeks after he closed. He already knew that. He wanted to F it up for them, as he said on my TV show. Vern, Vince Jr. bought our office December of 82, Los Angeles, from Mike LaBelle. That is where the blue infamous, the, our second cage, but the Blassy Steel cage was used in WrestleMania 2, the blue one for uh, Bundy and Hogan. That's where it came from. That was our Blassy steel cage to replace our rickety that almost fell down when Tolis and Blassy were in it, wood and metal cage. So the blue thing we used for a number of years, Piper and Chavo fought in it a million times and Blassy and Tolis had a farewell tag match in that blue infamous cage. Vince buys our office and then he'd already been promoting like C-grade house shows in San Francisco at the Cow Palace against Burn at the Oakland Arena, started promoting in LA and, um, you know, but a whole year before he went national, I guess we would consider perhaps January 84, the point of, you know, December 83, January 84, the point of Vince Jr. going national. I, I, I actually agree. I think, you know, maybe yeah, an alternative, alternative universe Vince could have handled that. Um, but we should just say to at least answer one of John's questions on our outline, maybe have this panel come back. I'm just going to throw out and ask you guys, most powerful promoters, territories, obviously Sam Munchnik, Eddie Graham, Florida, Paul Bosch, we've not even talked about the incredible Paul Bosch in Houston, Dallas for Fritz, Geigel in KC, Sheik, uh, because, I mean, he was booking Detroit and Toronto for a number of years, even though they ended up sadly going into the ground, but a number of years they were incredible. What what other guy? What are other promoters do you guys see? Would you throw Don Owen in Portland in there? I got I got a few that I'll list, but before I do, I feel bad because we, we we all host shows, so we're all used to doing this. But let's go to our host. We haven't heard from him in a while. <laughs> before well, we answer, before, you got any questions for us? Well, I have one before, or I should say after. You guys answer that question about promoters. And obviously, I sent you guys some notes and stuff. And we can be, 
as Bertrand said, we could be here for hours and hours talking about the territories. But after you answer the question about the promoters, I'm curious to know, and I'm going to combine a couple of different things here, is with the territories in general, and you guys can take us in whatever direction you want. What was unique about the different territories at the time in presenting their product to the wrestling fan? And even we saw a little bit about it mentioned in the Memphis episode on Vice last night in fans wanting to fight and attack the talent. But I want to show respect as well, because on that same episode, it was mentioned about, say, in quotations, outlaw promotions. We had famously the Pafos, but we also had somebody over in Vancouver at the time in Dean Silverstone. But there was other places along the way. So if you guys can throw that around a little bit besides promoters that Mike was asking, feel free. I'll go first and I'll do it real quick. So this, this could be like the template for all of us. Big time promoters, if you take Vince out of the equation, um, obviously you're going to talk about Eddie Graham. You're going to talk about Jarrett. You're going to talk about Muchnick. You're going to talk about Von Erich. And you're going to talk about Vern. As far as outlaw territories go, you can make the argument that the biggest outlaw territory of all time is Vern Gagne and the AWA. So, yeah, the Pafos are, when people say outlaw promotion, that's the first name they go to are the Pafos, because how can you not? Because Randy was so, he's the macho man. Everybody loved the macho man. And anybody who's ever spoken for more than two minutes to Lenny just falls in love with him. And they they were sending their tape out. uh, Terrible interrupting. They sent their tape out to places they never would ever tour. LA, Francisco, Portland. And then they would do localized vignettes, trashing the local talent for San Francisco. They were trashing Roy Shire and Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens and Pepper Gomez. LA, Tola Splassy were long gone. They weren't even there. Portland, they were trashing guys at there at that point in 7980. But for for, for outlaw promotions, I'm going to say, you know, Technically, uh, Vern with the AWA, as big as it got and as mainstream as it got, and it got the ESPN contract, it was an outlaw promotion because it broke away from the NWA. It wouldn't do business. But I think the um, difference is oh, oh go, don't go ahead. That's where I was going to leave it. The difference with it, where I, I would not consider the AWA an outlaw, basically for a couple of reasons. Because, first of all, they sort of had a special dispensation, like they were kind of recognized by the NWA, like, we're going to let you do your thing. We're going to give you this area. The difference, too, is, like, for a true outlaw, they're usually running, and this, of course, is nothing that would ever hold up in a court of law. It makes no sense at all, but in the weird world of wrestling, they're running in somebody else's backyard. They're running somewhere where you have maybe an NWA representative or somebody who's saying, hey, this is supposed to be my spot. Like, you can't run here. I'm the wrestling in this area. You know, who are you? Whereas with the AWA, they sort of had carved out their space. It's not like, and correct, maybe I'm wrong. It's not like the NWA was saying, no, 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 no. Minneapolis, you know, that's ours. You can't run there. Minnesota, you know, that we have a guy that we want to run Minnesota. You can't do that. 
I don't think they were really doing that with the AWA. They were sort of like letting them have their thing uh, in the same way that they were letting, you know, Vince have it, has his, have his thing in the Northeast as well. Well, I think because Vern was already had his thing. Yeah. Vince already had his thing. And then they decided not to recognize Stez anymore because of the Rogers match from, I believe, Toronto and, and 61, correct. Kohler has Chicago and Fred Kohler left with them. Right. right. Now we were all broke loose for Chicago. Yeah, he, he was working with Vince. Yeah. Omaha, the Do Six, they recognized Carpanti. LA with the WWA, they recognized Carpanti as their first world champ. And there were a few others. Boston recognized Montreal. Carpanti. Yeah, Montreal, too. You're exactly right. Now, the last part of the question, and then I'll pass it along, was what made the different territories so special? Every wrestling, wrestling is like every other sport or activity. Regions of the countries like things different ways. East Coast hockey is very different from West Coast hockey. And when West Coast hockey is played on the East Coast, we get pissed. Baseball. National League Baseball and American League Baseball are very different. Same sport, same game, but one is a strategy-based pitching game. One is an offense game. Wrestling, the territories all had different flavors. Like they said in that uh, Memphis episode, they wanted the realism, the nasty, but kind of bizarre Detroit. They wanted the blood and the guts. Um, Chicago initially wanted the most professional of horrible, horrible sentence structure for someone who's a writer, the most professional of the amateurs. (laughs) You know, they wanted the amateur legitimate shoot wrestling in their pros every territory had different tastes and different flavors and they could run them that way and i i also think you can't underestimate the fact that those those flavors those tastes i really think were shaped by the promotions i don't think it was anything like yeah you can say certain things like certain you know like uh fans in philadelphia are are nuts and bloodthirsty and all that and you could say but in detroit right things like that but I think that that the promotions were shaping it like, for example, like Eddie Graham, Eddie Graham had a great love for the shooters and for the legitimate style. And so he kind of conditioned his fans to be predisposed to that because they were just like, okay, well, this is our wrestling. We turn the TV on. This is what wrestling is in Detroit. You know, I talked to plenty of people who grew up with Detroit wrestling, of course, writing the book and they loved it and they would wax nostalgic about it. But you can talk to people from other territories that would say Detroit, forgive me, Dave Brzezinski and everybody else, that Detroit was garbage and they couldn't stand it because it was just blood and guts and people, you know, hitting each other with chairs and five minute matches. And it was just a circus. And so it's like the, the fans were being trained to accept, you know, what it was like Madison Square Garden. You knew you were going to have a certain type of worker there. And, and guys knew that when they went to the garden, they could make way more money and work a, a, an easier style at the same time because that is what the fans were conditioned to accept. But you so got to know, each territory had a state athletic commission. If they were involved, you were screwed. You were kind of locked down as to <laughs> what you could do. Maybe Detroit up in Michigan was wide open. You could get away with anything. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't have some. Some some Maryland, areas didn't have an athletic commission. Maryland, right? you had to in, be careful. 
They were there. They, it had about six of those bastards sitting at the table all the time. This is Bertrand. I don't know about the commissions in uh, Canada, you know, and maybe go beyond Montreal. And also, I, when you guys posed that question, I said everything was unique because I got to travel, not all of them, but almost all of them, 95%, including Puerto Rico. Everything from the fans, the refs, the timekeeper, the TV, everything was unique, different, and fun. Yeah, I mean, that was my life. But Bertrand, uh, was was that the, the rule where you guys heavily, say Montreal and beyond, Toronto, Calgary, uh, the Maritimes, Winnipeg, Nova Scotia, was were the commissions really heavily involved in shaping or limiting what the promoters could do? I, I don't know about the other city uh, as much, but in Montreal, the commission was there all for until the mid 80s uh, basically until wwf came in and, and 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 got away with with them being a spectator and just collecting money and then just disappeared as they became full entertainment uh, before that starting going back to quinn the promotion and the commission kind of worked together uh the in, in the grand prix all-star war i mean johnny Rougeau was closer to the, 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 the Montreal Athletic Commission and, and he could get away with things and he could make sure that they would put some uh, very big hurdle in front of the Vachon and, and Robert for them trying to, because the commission would only uh, have jurisdiction on the island of Montreal. Anything outside in the province was, you know, there was no commission. So that, that was also different. So for, for most years, the commission kind of worked and in hand with with the wrestling promotion, the same much in the same way that they worked with journalists with you know brown envelope and you know extra money on the side and, and things of that nature. <laughs> yeah. Or hey, you need a smoke break kind of deal. Hey, so they could pull off an angle. And a lot of times the referees, obviously, where you had a state that was strict or had an athletic commission, the referees were employees of the commission. They were not. You know, like today, the, a referee is talent. A, a referee is an employee yep. of the of the wrestling company. They're just a talent. They're not an actual, you know, referee. Whereas in those days, like I, I got to talk at length with Dick Kroll, who was, you know, the right. iconic, yeah. iconic Legend. Madison Square Garden referee. And he talked about what a weird line they walked because they had this divided loyalty. Like they worked for the commission. But they also were beholden to, you know, let's say Vince or the Garden, or, and and they had a they had a certain things to uphold. And, and and sometimes he told me they would even have to kayfabe the commission because they couldn't let the commissions know how much they were in cahoots with the wrestling promotion. It was this really archaic thing. And he said how um, they wouldn't know. You know, this was great. He explained to me how you know how especially in these big matches at the Garden, the referees would always pat everybody down very carefully and slowly and do this whole ritual. He said, that's where they were telling me what the finish was going to be or, or what the big spots were. Cause he had no idea because the referees weren't allowed to get near the wrestlers backstage. And you had a commissioner the representative there watching them. So they would just say, well, okay, look, uh, so-and-so is going over and watch out. We're going to do this big spot where we go over the top rope, make sure you're out of the way, like things like that. That would be going on while he was patting these guys down for foreign objects, supposedly. Even though New York was pretty much like you're saying, you know, they would give a little. When Lou yeah. Albano wrestled Snooker on his big comeback, he dropped his blade. He goes in his pocket and pulls out a straight razor. 
And Vince Sr.'s like, Lou, what the hell is wrong with you? You're going to lose me to Garden. You can't do that. I asked, and he was like, you know, like Lou, he's just slicing himself up because Vince and Gorilla Monsoon were doing the commentary. They blew it a little bit. They're like, Albano's going into that tunic he's wearing. And it's like, oh shit, he's pulling out a blade. What the <laughs> hell, man? It's like, yeah. I remember Rick Martell telling a story about that. Uh, Didn't I in wonder, New York, they have the toughest athletic commission. I think Jersey and New York, perhaps Philly. Yes. Or they had the strictest until. 80s, 90s, when it was Washington State and Oregon had, and, and, and Vince Jr. refused to tour there. It was just and, insane. Uh, that's also why it, it was in New Jersey where Vince finally put his foot down in, in 88, I think it was, or 89, and said, look, wrestling is entertainment. You know, they went into they went into a court and declared this, and it was specifically to get the New Jersey commission off their back. Well, but it ripped. Dugan had a lot to do with that, <laughs> right? But it ripped. <laughs> oh. But it rippled across the whole business. Obviously, this great revelation that everybody already knew. You know, this, that that pro wrestling is not a, is not a sport and shouldn't be governed by the state athletic commission. That plays into what you said, though. Vince Jr. could have feasibly been NWA president, alternative universe, not out for himself and killing others because he did that, and it it w- helped everybody else out. No more having to pay ridiculous fees right. to the athletic commission that's so what i mean he, he was he was very forward thinking that's what i mean like he 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 was able that's why he was able to beat all those guys because he he wasn't set in the mindset that they were stuck in but like i said if he had taken that those abilities and used it in a constructive way he could have led them all instead of killing but them all his his killing cafe by by blowing the whistle on it and you know to get the commissions off their back did not help the business. People could say it didn't hurt it, but it did. He wasn't worried about that. He was worried about his bottom line. He didn't it's, get well, right. That, but that's the thing. When you say, you know, it, it, he took them off everybody's back, but he also destroyed the business for a lot of people. I also don't know how sustainable it was. That's the thing. There, there, there's this thing where, like, how long could you keep it going, especially in an environment where it's, you know, it's not just Sam Mushnick going away. It's cable television it's the idea of local television going away i mean by the time you get to the 90s local you tv is just infomercials and the boys texting finishes right and so now you have social media in today's environment i, I just think it would be impossible absolutely impossible to maintain strict kayfabe in today's environment it of, was impossible of once vince took over because WWF slash WWE wrestling, and I hate to say it, and a lot of people get mad at me for saying it, is it was cartoon wrestling sure. compared yeah, to the was. other promotions. It was. It's so a- no one believed it. I mean, except for little kids, no one really believed in it. Everybody well, that's why you, you also had the situation where when, when he started going into some other territories that had a different type of product and a more reality-based product where people believed and they rejected it initially like that, that, that was happening in the Carolinas. It was happening in Georgia where they were putting on shows and the crowd is chanting fake, which is hilarious when you think about it, but, but because from their point of view, this was much more obviously fake than the wrestling that they had. When black Saturday occurred, Nikita, when black Saturday occurred, they still talk about it. Busted Open talks about it weekly. It's like the most horrible day in wrestling. When, when they had the usual intro with Austin Idol and Stan Hansen, and, you, and then Freddie Miller introduces Vince Jr., and it, it, that, the, the ratings went down the toilet. 
uh, it took a year and then, you know, Oli got the time back, they repurchased it and blah, blah, blah. And when Oli had his early morning, 6 a.m. Pacific time show, 9.05 Eastern, and Sundays was uh, Bill Watts Mid-South, they immediately drew a whole ratings point and more than Vince's year there. It was just a different, people were used to athletic, not so perfect, pretty gritty, realistic wrestling in Georgia as many other places, Florida, Missouri. People want to give Hogan the big credit for 84's expansion, but don't forget the Sheik and Sergeant Slaughter's big feud was going on. Vince let that run its course and it was very bloody, but when that was done, then it was strictly cartoons. Piper was hot. He was getting away with a lot of good stuff too, where it was violence. The Sheik and Nikolai is a tag team, but then it was like, okay, now we're going to be, they didn't um, go PG, but they were getting close. It was silly. Let's not forget about Nikita, and let's not forget about Snuka and his ankle in Morocco at the time, where Piper talks about that. Oh, well, that was in 83. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely. I remember the brilliance of Vince what you're talking Senior, about. though. The brilliance of Vince Senior, he has uh, a heel Iron Sheik walking back and a heel Sergeant Slaughter walking past them. They have a look and exchange. Vince Senior hadn't even smartened Sarge, Bob Remus, that anything was going to come of that. And that's what turned Sarge and led to amazing business with Sergeant Slaughter and Iron Sheik. Not the real Sheik, the original Sheik, as right. pretty much everybody in Canada's. When you say Sheik, they only think of that far out. They don't think of Iron Sheik. Let me throw something out to to very quickly, we're probably getting to the close, that Paco Alonso used to come up and, and uh, Salvador Luteroth before him, I think that was his father-in-law for CMLL, they would make all the NWA meetings from Mexico. They were the biggest, they're the oldest promotion in the world. They're like 83 years and counting, consistent with TV, older than even, you know, Vince Sr. to Jess McMahon, blah, blah, blah. And they still have a ton of titles that are called the NWA Junior, the NWA Welterweight, the NWA Women's. So they still retain that original Sam Munchnik NWA they always had in the 70s, 80s. They have kept those title belts alive. Many of them, the same original belts falling apart, which I think is incredible. And that is a testament to the territories, the value the amazing territories and all you young folks i hope they'll watch tales from the territories and uh, i hope they ha can construct some panels just let the boys talk that's all you got to do you don't have and, and have footage have original footage have eddie gilbert running over jerry lawler knocking him over the top of the car that's that's well, that series on vice one thing i want to say about the memphis thing uh, after watching that episode which i enjoyed very much by the way but and you guys could tell me if I'm totally off base here, you know, because uh, but because I think I may be one of the younger people in here. No offense to anybody, but uh, they talk Probably about got you beat. when wrestling was real, you know, Memphis being this very real kind of realistic. I always thought and especially from what I've seen and what I know about the territory was that at the time they were looked at as one of the more ridiculous. And I don't mean in a bad way, but just like over the top not realistic promotion they had mummies and they had like freddy krueger it was a little point. later that was in the early 90s when it, it went from cwa to uswa yeah late 80s early 90s they went ridiculous before it was viewed as super gritty and the thing that led to fmw in japan onita and uh throw in a little chic and ecw but yeah they no, they were they were pretty good solid because they had Everybody in the territories knew they had the highest TV rating in the country, maybe outside of 
whatever tried to be because Vince Senior had you know crummy UHF station. But, but they had it? huge ratings. But Brian's right. You know, Memphis Didn't... was run very strange. They had two yeah. bookers that would switch on and off every six months. And when Lawler was booking, Lawler was a fan of comic books. Lawler was a fan of old horror movies. And in the late 70s, Frankenstein was on the show. You know, I mean, it was someone in me. Well, we had that in L.A. too. And they went beyond Memphis in the ridiculousness of saying he billing him with Jimmy Lennon Sr. And that's why he quit his ring announcer. He had to bill him, say he's from (laughs) Transylvania. And the the announcement. Well, well, Jimmy had his boxing credibility to worry about. Wait, Brian, do you remember that? The Frankenstein monster in L.A. 1980. That's what really led to the slow death of our LaBelle territory. We had to sell to Vince Sr., who promised him he would have 10 years to be recognized as the local West Coast promoter for the WWF. That lasted a year. We'll see. Right. I mean, like, I've always heard that with Memphis, the attitude of a lot of other promoters was that they were exposing the business by doing some of the over the top outrageous angles that they were doing that I guess is now considered realistic. But like when I think of reality or realistic wrestling, I think like St. Louis, I think even, I think Florida, I think that, you know, even like Georgia and the Carolinas, very like believable style. I don't think Memphis, and that's not a knock on them. It's, it's very entertaining, but I don't think, reality when i think of the memphis promotion at all no and remember her and Ganya, as well as bill watts they were like eddie graham they were into the legit athletes so we do have yes. to give bill watts mega credit and leroy mcgurk before him because that's where stan hansen and brody came out it was leroy mcgurk who later kind of in a an aggressive fashion took over the territory the mid-southern territory made it mid-south and of course, Vern Gagne, guys, amateur greats like Dale Lewis and even Johnny Powers started there from his amateur career in the AWA. So he had a lot of heavyweights and Dick the Bruiser from football. I was I was very lucky to grow up in where I did. First off, I love Buffalo because I'm a big fat guy. I like chicken wings. But <laughs> I grew up, we are. Uh, I'm like Brian. I think I, I'm one of the younger guys on the panel, maybe the second old, second young. I'm 47, so I'll put it out. I'm 48, you bastard. 38. Okay, there you go. Get into your late 60s, you youngins. (laughs) But uh, when I grew up, we got Buffalo and the the area around here was one of the first in the country to get cable put in. So I was getting Georgia wrestling. I was getting Florida wrestling. I was getting Detroit wrestling in the late 70s. I was getting the WWF, WWF into WWF. I was getting the AWA. I was getting Portland wrestling uh, on late night channel sometimes. Plus, I have a brother five years older than me who was the biggest wrestling nerd I ever knew growing up. So I saw everything. And the difference between then and now, I'll just stick to Buffalo, for example. When I talk to old timers in my area, They'll say things like, I always knew a lot of wrestling was fake. But I would go there every week and see UConn Eric and Ilio DiPaolo, and they were real. Right. Or Bruno was real, right? Bruno was real. Right. Now, UConn Eric was such a gimmick. He lived in Buffalo. He died in Tonawanda, New York, which is actually the little tiny city I was born in. He would drive around in a convertible in the middle of winter with no shirt on. Because he was from the Yukon. 
He never broke kayfabe. So kids and adults would see him around Buffalo with no shirt on in the middle of a Buffalo winter. Okay, this is insanity. That's how serious they took the business. And the people believed it. By 1984, well, actually probably by 85, when Hulkamania exploded, all those other wrestling were off of my television. Mm. The only thing I was getting was WWF and the ESPN feed of Vern's AWA show, which by that time was dying. And those other territories were still in existence, but the cable networks dropped them. No, Vince bought them out. <laughs> and as a kid... Hey, the cable network, not to show it. That's the difference. But even as an early teenager, you know, kid into my teens, none of... Every kid I knew, we all watched wrestling, but none of us believed it was real that grew up on the WWF. Yeah, I, and I have to say the same. My own experience as a kid watching wrestling in the 80s, there really never was a time where I thought what I was watching was, quote-unquote, real. I mean, I didn't fully – I didn't know how it worked. There would be things where I would go, oh, I wonder if that was real. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe some of it's real. But I never thought – I never had this illusion or anything. And I think, and I've said this on my own show too, but I think part of the reason is I had a huge wrestling fan in my family who got me into wrestling. It was my uncle. My uncle was in theater. My uncle was a, a performer. Okay. Uh, in, in live theater. And he loved it. He loved wrestling because of the performance aspect. So he had this very kind of sophisticated attitude towards it. Like he, he appreciated them. And even back in the seventies, he appreciated them as performers. Like he would, he would see these very intense like angles, you know, where people were supposed to get furious and he would be laughing, but not because he thought it was stupid. He was laughing because he thought it was brilliant. He thought it was so good what they were doing, but he completely saw through it. And so because I was learning with him, I always looked at it as, as entertainment and show business in a way, because that's how I actually got into it. And, you know, from him, but, but like I said in my book, uh, I dedicated it to my older brother. We loved me how real wrestling was by putting me in the figure four leg lock when I was eight. We all did that, right? I think yep. we can all safely say we've put someone in or been put in the figure four leg lock. You yes. said that on the East Coast, they'd knock your teeth out because they believed it. Yeah, but Both my uncle did. <laughs> loved it. And right? yeah, there were some things that's like, hey, eh, kind of like let that one slide. But right. it was Put on to the point where you could believe it. It wasn't stupid and ridiculous. If you got hit with a chair, that was it. It was done. Right. You didn't go get a mall. But Bully Ray Dudley says this all the time. The guys of today don't do what the old guys did. Register and sell. Lay down. Right. You get hit by a punch, lay down. Sell it. Yeah, would right. anybody survive any of the matches of today? Yes. Well, That's why they were so careful back then. Like you're saying, a chair shot. That should be the end. I mean, the reason they were protecting these things is because they were so scared that people would stop believing, whereas that's not a concern anymore. So now you can have Triple H hit somebody in the head with a sledgehammer and no one is going like, oh, my God, I think he killed that guy. Like, like we better you know, get the police in here because they completely understand that that's not what they're watching this for. It's it's out the window. But back then they had to be so careful. Like when Harley Race passed away, I did a whole obituary on him and i went back and watched all his title wins and things like this and i'm trying to remember i think 
when he beat Dory Funk Jr. for his first title, I may have the match totally wrong. He beat him with a suplex, just a suplex. Yep. You, you would never see that in a match today. A suplex is a setup move. But of course, the way they were thinking back then is if you really gave someone a suplex for real and they weren't expecting it and you lifted them up and slammed them in that way, you better believe that you would be able to cover them for three. They would be out of it for a good a good few minutes at least. But they're, they're just not thinking that way anymore. They're just thinking of it now as spectacle, as a visual spectacle. They're not thinking of the reality of what would these things really do to people if it was really done. All of the, all the 70s yeah. finishers, the 70s finishers of the territories, like the Superplex by Super Destroyer, for example, Bill Eady, they are now transition, near transition moves. It really breaks my heart to see the clothesline. Stan Hansen, Lariato, one of those, end of match. Now The, D- the DDT, what about the DDT? Super kicks, super kicks. So the claw, he's talking about the claw there. I mean, I grew up with Jake the Snake. With the DDT, you were dead. You were just dead. That was it. They, they, the match was over. Your week was over. Now it's just ah, it's just another move, DDT. I love AEW. I, I don't fast forward a second of it, but somebody did the other night. I won't say who. It was a DDT spinning off the top rope, and the guy sold it for two seconds. Right. That's dead. Yeah. I like their show, too, but they are oh, the I worst offenders it. of that. They've rejuvenated wrestling. Very quickly, the most uh, weirdest styles class matches ever shot in the territories. Honolulu, Blassie against Billy Robinson. Fred wouldn't sell for Billy. Billy got pissed in the main event for the gold belt, the Ring Magazine gold belt. That was their world championship there, a magazine title. Uh, Tom Burke, our Tom Burke historian, he was the editor, my boss there, and John Arizzi's boss at Ring Magazine. Again, Blassie, weirdest styles class match. He only went to visit family. I happened to be in Atlanta visiting my own family. It was Christmas of 74. Blassie against Bill Watts. Fred again wouldn't take a bump or hardly sold for Bill Watts. Bill got pissed. And Fred was the face, but Bill really got pissed. Wow. I don't know if I would want to be no selling for Billy Robinson. I don't know what (laughs) Freddie was thinking. Good grief. Well, he hadn't talked to Peter Mavia about that. A little more infamous thing. Uh, Jonathan, I know we're probably getting close to the close. We should let everybody talk. Just mention their podcast. Or Jonathan, you, you're the boss. You better take the lead. Well, I think before that, Jonathan, do we have any questions from any viewers or anything? Well, we don't. I asked the viewers, but I would like to start off as we close with uh, Richard, because I know he's got another appointment. So, sir, I know you said you did a recent book. So anything you would like to plug, then we will go to Mr. Solomon. Bertrand, you got to mute. Bertrand is asking you to plug everything and everything you'd love to plug. Well, everything that I need to plug is that uh, the book for Andrew the Giant is still out there, second printing. So, Eighth Wonder of the World by ECW Press. Um, the book by with I did with Pat Patterson, except that it's still available also through ECW Press. Uh, the Mad Dog version biography. Uh, and uh, the original Maddox Vigitan Screwjob. If you want to learn about one specific territory, uh, we have a hundred year of Montreal wrestling right there. Um, so that I think that's one of the best uh, way to to end this. Thank you very much, everyone, and have a great. Wait, evening. wait, wait! What are those two frame photos up behind your left shoulder? Two frame photos up there. Are those the Rougeos, Jacques, uh, Jacques and Raymond, or no? It's actually my brother and my best friend when they were a tag team. 
<laughs> Bertrand, I just I just want to tell you a quick thing before you go. I know you got to go. This is just for you before I plug anything. I was just at CAC. I think I don't know. I think I might be the only person here that was there. But when they in recognition of Pat Patterson, when we were having the buffet on the first night, the buffet dinner, they played Pat singing karaoke. They had like a whole playlist. I don't know where they got this from. There no, was a CD. He had a CD. Oh, OK. It... That was it then. My Way, of course, was one of them. But there were many other songs. And they played this while we were having dinner. So I thought you would like to know that it was very sweet. Pat, for about six years in a row, because I've been there since 86. I didn't go to the last two because of COVID. And I take care of 96 year old. But Pat would lead at the very end of our CAC, the last night, the Wednesday night awards banquet night. He would lead everybody either singing My Way, Sinatra, or What a Wonderful World, uh, Louis Armstrong. So yeah. Pat would always lead it. And when I would bring Pat out to some little small fan fest in California, he stole the show from an entire wrestling fan convention with guys like Bret Hart and Tommy Dreamer and all that. He would sing live, you know, he'd have, he'd have his backup CD, but he had, I have two of them. He has two CDs with like 12 songs on each that he released to him doing karaoke, which is why when he wasn't being called in by Vince senior for TV and pay-per-views, he was on once Louis Dandero died, his partner, he was on cruises where he went on the cruises just to sing karaoke. He was that into it and he loved it. And he had a great voice. I bet that's what they played was him recorded, well, probably just straight from the CD. Yeah, I think it was. Well, he just wanted to do, tell you that, Bertrand. He did do the CDs for his own pleasure and he, wanted, he loved giving those away and he went into a studio by himself to do it. And so that he would have loved that. He, he, he was dreaming of doing a show at the CEC in uh, the last few years that, that we were there together. So uh, I'm sure he was very happy about, uh, about the, the, the homage there. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, uh, sir. Cheers. Thank you, Bertrand. Mr. Solomon, I know you got a time constraint too. So yeah, I have I have a five year old, which uh, my wife has been taking responsibility for for uh, bastard for longer than I think she wanted to be. So no, but uh, there's my book, of course. There's Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original chic. I keep plugging that. It, it's it's there's a digital print and audio version. And the audiobook version, I narrate as well. I was so glad that I got a chance to do that and not have somebody else who would just mess up everybody's names and all that stuff. But um, and, and from what I understand, the audio version is actually selling the best. So I guess, I don't know, people. Fine. It, yeah, uh, people prefer it. But, what you know, whatever. Ro royalty is a royalty. So is it on they're, Audible? They're, Can we listen? Yes. To yes. It's on, Audible. Yeah. It, it's on Audible or even through Amazon, because Amazon has a partnership with Audible. You can get the Audible version through there. Um, there's my podcast, Shut Up and Wrestle, which is through the Arcadian Vanguard Network, which carries the Cornette shows, the great Brian Last, the 605 Super Podcast. So people that love old school wrestling. They already know that brand, but I have I've been blessed to have great um, old school themed guests on there. I just had Sheldon Goldberg, who I hope is doing OK. We got to talk at CAC, longtime New England promoter. Um, I did uh, I just did one today, which is going to run with Herb Simmons, the longtime promoter in Illinois and Missouri. Uh, but I've had RVD on there. I've had Blue Meanie on there. So many, I had Jeff Walton on there. I mean, just I've done almost 40 of them now. Um, shut up and wrestles the name. And we also just started the wrestling news. You mentioned Norm Keitzer. So Brian last owns, uh, 
the wrestling news. He owns Wrestling Review. He owned, he, owned, he he bought all of it from Brian Bucantis, and then he has revived the wrestling news in a different format. It's it's now a a weekly morning um, newscast, like a 10, 15 minute podcast where we do it straight up NPR style, except it's wrestling. We have we you know we do uh, reports on business globally, Lucha, Japan, United States, all the major companies. And we really try to treat it very journalistically, very seriously. Um, and it, it's at the wrestlingnews.com. Yeah. Well, it, it's weird because you would think it's the most basic, simple idea in the world, but it feels like no one else is doing it where we, we insert, there's no opinion. We're not trying to get ourselves over as characters or anything like that. It's just straight ahead. And, and I write most of the scripts and it, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm a teacher of journalism, so I'm trying to do it in a very journalistic style. And it's been, it's been fantastic so far. It's been a joy to a do. collection of those and I love them from the sevens. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the 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 original wrestling news. We still use the same logo. In fact, I have it over here somewhere. But we well, still that use was the, the same format logo. for most of the programs before they changed the style over. Well, Kaiser right. and Jim Melby they ended up doing the programs for everybody. Us in L.A., Vince Senior, Vern, yeah. uh, Watts, and uh, Goulas. They did ended up producing the programs in the seventies for territories most all the territories it was insane for a little while it was a big deal besides their magazines all their titles on the newsstands every month friend yeah i talked to norm about that once and he would tell he had a great relationship with vince senior they would use his facilities you know whenever they needed like he told me even sometimes if vince said hey we want to do a poster we just want to do a put like there's that great poster of bruno and backland together where they're shaking hands in front of the locker room doors and that was Kitzer printed those up for Vince because they didn't really have the ability to print out their own stuff. They didn't have the in-house kind of infrastructure to do it. So they needed somebody like him. And he had these, these great relationships until he didn't write anymore. And then suddenly everything changed and he was out in the cold, you know, things changed. But he was, he and Jim were the Kings for quite a while. Yeah. Big well, Thank I'm going to so get many. going myself, you, too, sir. then, guys. Thank you so Brian, much for having me on. Nikita. Greatly appreciate Brian, it. wait one minute. Sure. All right, because i got to get right into it, but I want to say thank you so much for having me on. This is great. It was such a pleasure talking to all of you. Everybody should go out and buy the wrestlers, wrestlers, Masters of the Craft Professional Wrestling, and after they buy that, get Brian's blood and fire because that book on the sheet, seriously, Two cities, read the whole thing. Ever. Greatest heel internationally, Japan, Mexico, wherever he went, Canada. There was nobody more colorful than nope. the Sheik who scared the fans before Brody ever was, I mean, even born. Uh, the Sheik, I cannot say enough about him because he was just brilliant. And yeah. I don't care. And that book I was looking say. so forward to, I thought I was going to savor it. And no, I read it in two two <laughs> sittings. No, well, thank I mean, you, Brian. And well, we're going to have to talk more offline. I, I might, I don't know if we're friends on Facebook, but I'll have to reach out even from the boxing side of things, because my family was in boxing for generations. My, my grandfather was a, a golden gloves fighter and coach in the New York area for decades. Um, he was the cousin of Lou Salika, the Bantamweight champion in yeah. the thirties and forties first cousin. So his name was Salika too. So like boxing is in my family's history. So we'll hey, have to we'll, we'll, talk. We'll do each other's shows. I'm yes. the co-host of Transatlantic History Ramblings, a history podcast. You are welcome on any time. 
Thank you. I would do that in a second. I'll reach out. Absolutely. And I, and I want to say, again, this has been such a pleasure. This panel is just such a great group of people. And wrestling is a very special, a special field. I, my whole life, have been a historian, and I'm what they call a hard historian. You know, I do <laughs> specializing in Victorian crime and Victorian poverty and, you know, hard history. And yet the most attention I've ever gotten for anything I've ever done was a wrestling book. And I was an outsider to the business. I mean, I was a fan as a kid, but came in as a historian for this project because my co-author, the great Dan Murphy, is Love Dan. as big a wrestling guy as there is in the world. And we grew up together. So it's just, oh. you know, we happen to grow up together. We've been friends since we were kids. Dan, um, I spoke to a writer like and a historian. Season. Yeah, we spoke at length at CAC. We we hung out most of the most of those couple of days. Dan Dan ran the nostalgia room, so he helped me get my table set up and everything. He's great. He's, a, he's an amazing guy, and uh, his love for the business is just unreal. And being brought in as a historian and a writer to work on this book just rekindled my love and respect for the business. And like I said, of all the hard history I've done the most attention and the most love I've ever gotten from anything was for this wrestling book. And it just shows everybody out there. Don't be embarrassed. The world loves wrestling and it's a very special, very special sport. Oh, and I Ryan will call goes. it a sport. Ryan, I, I, both all of you guys, cause I got to go to the big mouth's got to go. Debbie Harry was on the tonight show with Fallon last Friday. And I had to tell Melter and all these people, they had no clue. She talked for about five minutes. She has a new box set of Blondie and they have reproductions of just photos that she likes in this box set of all the years of Blondie. One of them is a photo from ring wrestling, Tom Burke's publication with her and Andre backstage at MSG. I think George took that photo and she talked about that. She talked about Andre. She said she had a, one of her best girlfriends, did PR either for the state athletic commission or MSG or Vince senior himself. And she said she got free tickets and she and her husband, you know, uh, forget what his name was a blondie. Chris Stein would Stein, like, like hundreds, hundreds of tri WF shows. And then she talked about her and Andy Kaufman. They showed another photo of her, like putting a leg lock on Andy Kaufman. If any of you guys saw it, this was just last Friday. And she talked about she and Andy co-producing T-neck Tansy, an off-Broadway play that Brian may remember, or Nikita, and it died after its opening night, but it was a big deal for us. All of us were talking about it because we barely got any, in the territory days, any mention of wrestling other than Gorgeous George or Gene LaBelle on Jack Benny's show or Andre on The Tonight Show when Carson wasn't there and it was Mike Douglas, I think, instead. Or, of course, all the PR leading up to Inoki Ali where at the Chicago one, not the famous uh, Vince Sr. taping with Monsoon and Ali, but at the Chicago one, Blassie and Ganya coming into the ring together. We were losing our collective minds over that because they had no rapport hated each other fred blassie and Vern Gagne, but there they are on tv standing a foot apart in the ring with ali and uh, i think it was buddy wolf who was doing the job for ali and uh, before uh, you know the monsoon ali thing which i forget who who was he facing you guys who was Cluna. Uh, Baron Cluna. Cluna. yeah uh, and then Monsoon came into it and airplanes. And that's where Monsoon gave his famous line that Ali wouldn't know a wrist lock from a wristwatch. <laughs> nice. And also, back to Debbie Mike. Harry. Don't Good forget. Night, yeah, so yeah, kudos to Debbie Harry. She said she still loves wrestling, as does Cindy Lauper. 
Hopper, so many celebs, Danny DeVito, and all those guys, Andy Worrell, who were at WrestleMania one, who they threw on camera with Okerlund. You know, it was like a deer in the headlights with poor Andy uh, 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 Worrell standing there with uh, Gene Okerlund. And Good my night. last comment before, before, I, before I got a David. run, I'm sorry. Is, uh, oh, my last comment before I got a run is also with Debbie. One of the most famous pictures of her is her wearing her Dr. X t-shirt. Dr. X, the destroyer, the great dick buyer from the greatest city in the world, Buffalo, New York. Right. <laughs> yeah, she'd wear it on stage. All right, I'm going to head out now, guys. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you, everybody. guys. I hope to talk to uh, you all soon. Have a great Dr. night. Mike. Good night, everybody. Nikita and Dr. Mike, do you guys have anything yes. you'd like to plug? No, listen to Crazy Train Radio with me and Jonathan, and I hope we do another panel like this soon, because this was like uh, we just scratched the surface of how wonderful the territories were. And this book, When It Was Real, is all about what we're talking Great, about tonight. My brother Nikita. Nikita, love you. I will talk yes, to you. The same, Dr. Mike. You're my brother. Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, everybody. Thank involved. you. Our pleasure. Wow! Thinking your day is bad and really looking to make it worse? Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts, there's bound to be injuries. <laughs> now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, Wrinkled Ladies. For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend while in Sail Black 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. Who the fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS.